Hello, everyone. This is Rumble with Michael Moore. I'm Michael Moore, and I'm very happy to have you uh, with me here today. My guest is going to be the great writer, thinker, philosopher, all-round important voice that many have tried to stifle over the years, but have been unsuccessful. The great Chris Hedges will be joining us, Pulitzer Prize winner, 15 years as a foreign correspondent with the New York Times until he finally had to come out and say what he had to say at the beginning of the Iraq war, which was this was an immoral and an illegal war. And for that, the Times had to show him the door because the Times was so involved in taking us to war, they could not have one of their own talking against it. So he will be my uh, guest here. I want to tell you before uh, we get going that we uh, have a special event coming up here on our new Substack operation. You may have heard about it uh, yesterday if you are a Substack subscriber. If you were not a subscriber yet to my Substack, that's my weekly column and I, I put my podcast on it. But if you're just a podcast listener, sign up for my Substack. It's free. Just put your email address in there. And one of the things to sort of help kick off our, our Substack launch is we're going to have a free worldwide screening Next Friday, Friday, September 10th, and it will be a screening of my 2004 Palme d'Or winning uh, film, Fahrenheit 9-11. We are going to do this on the eve of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and it'll be an online event, but uh, all you have to do is, if you're not, just just sign up and become a free subscriber. Just sign up at michaelmoore.com. Just go there. Go to michaelmoore.com, put your email in there, and you will have your ticket free uh, for this online event. And we're going to have some special guests that night, Friday, September 10th. It's going to be 9 p.m. Eastern time, 6 p.m. Pacific. And and if you're in Europe, if you're in Asia, the Middle East, Africa, South America, Antarctica, wherever you're at, you can join in and watch with me uh, this film that um, myself and my friends and our crew put together in the 12 months after winning the Oscar for Bowling for Columbine. And uh, we left the Oscars determined. It was the fifth night of the war, the Iraq war, determined to try and bring this war to an end and bring Bush uh, and his policies to an end. And so a year later, we came out with Fahrenheit 9-11, became the largest grossing documentary of all time, uh, won a whole bunch of awards, uh, and I like to think, help move the American people away from war. A year or so, a uh, year and a half after the film came out, the majority of the American public was turning against the war, turning against Bush, and in just the, the very next election, the, the midterms of 2006, the American people uh, took the House and the Senate away from the Republicans and gave it to the Democrats. And so for the last two years of Bush's uh, administration, he was essentially handcuffed and unable to conduct more war and do the things he wanted to do. Of course, things went on for some time after that, but we did in 08, like Barack Obama, and a bunch of things got better. But nonetheless, this film played a very important role in all this. And I thought, really, what better time for us all to come together and watch it one more time? Because unfortunately, what the film shows is we're still in that same mindset 20 years later. We don't think we've learned our lessons. So I encourage you to join us 
on uh, Friday night, September 10th, 9 p.m. Eastern. Just sign up by going to michaelmoore.com. It's all free. And then we'll have a great discussion afterwards. There'll be a live Q&A. You can ask me anything. And uh, I encourage you uh, to, to do that. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's the first, what we're going to call Mike's Movie Night. We're going to do this every month or so. Uh, I'm going to show you a movie. You can join me. And uh, it's after this is a free one here, but the uh, the other ones after that will be just for the members who are you know paid uh, their paid membership or whatever. So uh, if you want to do that later, you can. But for this one, Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 9/11, uh, it's all free, and uh, and we'll have a I think a very provocative discussion afterwards, uh, and we'll take your questions. So sign up. It's Friday, September 10th, 9 p.m. Eastern, michaelmoore.com. Um, we're going to bring on Chris Hedges here in just a few seconds, uh, right after uh, I give a shout out here to our underwriter uh, for this episode. Today, we have with us the great Chris Hedges. He's one of our most important journalists thinkers, war reporters, and most importantly, truth-tellers. He is the recipient of the 2002 Pulitzer Prize, where he and his team were reporting on global terrorism uh, in the wake of 9-11. Hedges was also a foreign correspondent for 15 years uh, for the New York Times, uh, serving as the paper's Middle East Bureau Chief and the Balkan Bureau Chief back during the war in the former Yugoslavia. Chris Hedges has also received a theology degree. It's called a Master of Divinity uh, degree from Harvard. And that led him eventually, somewhere along the line here, to becoming a Presbyterian minister. So you have somebody here who travels both in the political world and the world of looking at life through a spiritual lens. This is a very unique combination, one we don't often see, but one I think that has led to him having a very profound and powerful voice. In 2003, Chris was asked to give the commencement speech at Rockford College in Rockford, Illinois, and in the middle of the speech, sort of all hell (laughs) broke loose. Uh, You know, this is a a moment that's really just a year and a half or so, almost two years after 9-11. And as we remember the tenor of those times, saying what he said in his commencement speech, well, it rocked the boat and eventually led uh, to him losing his job at the New York Times because he denounced the war in Iraq. And if you remember at the time, the Times was had Judith Miller reporting story after story of stuff that wasn't true, on the front page of the Times about Saddam having these weapons of mass destruction or the ability to build them. And, uh, of course, she eventually lost her job for that once the Times had to come clean and, and announce their mea copa for helping to drag us into the Iraq war with these front page lies and their editorial support of the invasion of Iraq. They, like many liberals uh, at that time, just before the Iraq war, were very enthusiastic about a military response to a country that had nothing to do with 9-11. Chris is also a very prolific author. His latest 
book is titled Our Class Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison, which essentially he details his experience teaching New Jersey state prisoners over the last number of years. Chris Hedges' other books include War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, Empire of Illusion, The End of Literacy, and The Triumph of Spectacle. Those are the books from the first decade, amongst others, of the of the 2000s, and worth taking a look at now, still relevant. 2019, he wrote America, The Farewell Tour. Um, I didn't have tickets for that, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, Chris also received uh, the Amnesty International Global Award for Human Rights Journalism in 2002. In all these books and in his writings online, uh, which he now writes for Sheer Post, uh, if you're not familiar with Sheer Post, go to it, sign up, great analysis and writing. Sheer Post is spelled S-C-H-E-E-R-P-O-S-T, which you can usually find him on Mondays uh, on, on Sheer Post. Um, I highly recommend reading his column on uh, Bob Shear's amazing online, I'll call it a, a newsletter, a magazine, actually. So in these books and uh, in his writings online, Chris Hedges teaches us how we can see the decaying symptoms of empire in our own country with unemployment, opioid overdoses, mass shootings, and the like. I wanted to have Chris on today to discuss Afghanistan and Empire, and the upcoming 9-11 anniversary. And we'll get into that, but first, the awful news out of Texas here in the last 24-plus hours, where the Trump-dominated Supreme Court in D.C., U.S. Supreme Court, refused to block Texas from banning abortion, effectively killing Roe v. Wade. They will hear an actual case in this next session where it is predicted that they will in some form, if not in all forms, overturn Roe v. Wade. This has happened, though, now, effectively, in Texas. Chris knows an awful lot about this subject. In 2008, he wrote uh, a book called American Fascists, The Christian Right, and the War on America. It's a scary book where he spends hundreds of hours interviewing Christian right-wingers and being a Presbyterian minister himself and and with his divinity uh, degree from Harvard, They are fascinating conversations about Christianity and then Christianity. He also attended, he writes in the the American Fascist book, a lot of rallies by the uh, Patriot pastors and uh, other creationists in their seminars and all this. It's really, um, uh, it's it's an amazing book. And I thought we will start off by talking about Texas and then get into the uh, the issues at hand here regarding the end of the war in Afghanistan. Chris Hedges, welcome to Rumble. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. So, okay, you've been warning about this uh, fascist threat long before Trump was president, back when, when Trump was just an NBC TV star. And also, as I remember, because the very first year I, I came to New York after my first movie, this would be like in 1990, I got invited to go to a fundraiser for Planned Parenthood, and at the fundraiser, and as and I think as one of the uh, hosts of it, was a man by the name of Donald J. Trump. I'm just curious, though. You were onto this, not just Trump, but but that which gave us Trump long before other people who ended up 
writing about this later. What were you witnessing in this country at that time that led you to believe that we were in deep, deep trouble? Well, I had covered disintegrating societies, including, of course, Yugoslavia. So uh, I'm very attuned to the signals of a society devolving, as ours has, uh, into um, a dysfunctional mess, the rupturing of what Emil Durkheim calls these social bonds that uh, drive people into self-destructive behaviors and uh, lead them to embrace magical thinking. Um, that was one. Number two, uh, I come out of the church. My father was a minister, so I grew up in the church. I graduated from divinity school, so I'm biblically literate. Uh, and uh, I saw in the theology of the Christian right a heretical belief system. I mean, we can just start with the most basic idea of, of Jesus coming to make us rich um, is heretical. The blessing of the white race and especially the white race in America above other races to create the Christian nation, the, uh, the sanctification of the wars against uh, Muslims in the Middle East, the uh, blessing of capitalism, and that's why you know, Purdue and all these uh, large entities fund uh, the Christian right. Uh, and, and, uh, and so I was on to the Christian right early, I think because of my background, um, and uh, I didn't use the word fascist lightly. Um, they have all the hallmarks of the so-called German Christian Church, uh, which uh, fused the iconography and language of Nazism, of the state, with the Christian religion, which is, of course, what the Christian right has done. Uh, these mega-pastors prey on the despair of their congregants in the same way Trump preyed on the despair of uh, the people signing up for his sham university or at the his in his casinos. Uh, Trump, there was questions, you know, how could, at the beginning of the Trump presidency, how could the Christian right make an alliance with a figure like as repugnant uh, as Trump? And uh, in fact, of course, he shares all the hallmarks of most of these mega pastors who make millions off of this despair uh, and uh, the, the, exhibit the same kind of narcissism and often the same kind of sexual predatory uh, behavior. I guess I would argue that the difference between him and most Christian right mega pastors is that the proclivity, sexual pro proclivities of the mega pastors appear to be a little kinkier. Um, but uh, he tapped into this movement uh, that had essentially uh, severed people from a reality-based universe. And that's what all totalitarian movements are about, as Hannah Arendt writes in The Origins of Totalitarianism. It's all about magical thinking. And uh, I remember having a conversation with Jeremy Scahill right before his book Blackwater came out, and I said, well, what doesn't make the Christian right an authentically fascist movement is they don't have a military armed element. And uh, he said, oh, yes, they do, of course, mm -hmm. because uh, uh, Betsy DeVos's uh, brother, uh, who founded Blackwater, uh, comes out of the Christian right. And uh, when you look closely at the U.S. military, uh, about 90, 90, 98% of combat units are white. Uh, and uh, the and this is something uh, uh, that, you know, has been documented uh, uh, by, by all sorts of people investigating the military. There's a strong strain of that 
uh, Christian right element within those combat units. So um, I think it was the combination of being in disintegrating societies overseas and then uh, having a theological background that tipped me off to how dangerous these people were. It was a very controversial 10 years ago to charge that they are fascists, but then, of course, we end up on January 6th, and we see these groups and the connecting tissue uh, between these groups is this kind of Christian fascism, and now we are uh, uh, watching them uh, destroy uh, uh, women's reproductive rights, which we should speak about, because the, yeah, I sat through a, a Right to Life weekend for the book in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. So I was there for three days, but it was only then, after hours, that I understood that the whole Right to Life movement has nothing to do with abortion. Um, it is about um, uh, fighting the culture of death. I mean, they br brought these women, there are probably about 400 women there, and uh, they at the beginning they asked all the post-abortive sisters to stand, and uh, almost everyone in the room stood. And uh, when I went around and did interviews with them, uh, it became uh, clear that not only had they had abortions, most of them had had multiple abortions. And they prey on this sense of guilt and sense of shame. And there were a group called Priests for Life that were there, right-wing Catholic group, and they were taking these women off for retreats for the weekend, and they would give them dolls, um, and they would tell them that these were the babies they had murdered, and they had to name the doll and dress the doll and bathe the doll uh, and then at the end of the weekend, begged for forgiveness as they held up their uh, murdered child in the form of a doll and make a vow to fight the culture of death, which is us. Um, and it, so it's far more insidious than the right to life. It is about preying on the guilt and the shame uh, to fight what is defined as a culture of death, secular humanism. At the same time, the elites, uh, you know, who look at the Christian right as useful idiots, are acutely aware that the birth rate in the United States uh, is falling, and uh, that because giving birth is so expensive, even if you have insurance, there is in essence a kind of birth strike uh, by women uh, who don't want to pay those exorbitant medical bills who are denied access to parental leave, childcare, job protection. It's just financially so punitive to have children in the United States. Um, so since 1971, births in the United States have not been at replacement levels, uh, which mm -hmm. is considered to be 2,100 births per 1,000 women over their lifetimes. That's what you need to, um, for a generation to replace itself. So when you, when you say that, that they, can, they consider us the culture of death. You meaning we're the enemy to this so-called right to life movement that they that use the right to life movement to condemn secular humanists as satanic forces that are perpetuating a culture of death. That's at its core what this is about within the Christian right. Yes. If they really believe that, um, then it's not that long of a leap to go from believing that secular humanists, which I would think is at least half the country, if not more than that, the leap to eliminating us, and I don't mean just at the ballot box, but to use violence 
doesn't seem like, I'm sure, a long leap in their heads. It's not only not a long leap, but it's, it's now what we're flirting with at this moment. You wrote in one of your uh, essays here that um, abortion, I'm quoting you, abortion is never going to go away. And if it again becomes illegal, as it seems that this new Trump-dominated court is going to do in the coming year, uh, they seem to have five votes. Three of them are Trump's appointees, the other two being Clarence Thomas and uh, Alito. Um, and they don't know quite how Roberts will come down on this. It could be a, a six-vote uh, uh, majority. You write that if it again becomes illegal, the rich, as in the past, will find ways to provide abortions for their wives, mistresses, and girlfriends, and the poor will die in unhygienic back rooms. Yeah, that's right. Abortion's always with us. I, I covered Romania. I covered the fall of Ceausescu, where between 65 and 89, when Ceausescu fell, uh, you, you, you couldn't get abortions. You couldn't even get contraception because he was trying to boost the population. And that's exactly what happened. So all of the people around Ceausescu, you know, their wives and girlfriends and mistresses and sisters and daughters didn't have any problem getting safe abortions. It was all the people who didn't have access to that kind of privilege and that kind of wealth. And that, that that's what happens. I mean, that's the, the poor die. So what happened here in Texas this week What's our takeaway from this? What do we need to do? It was like, a, for, I mean, for me, it was like being banged on the side of, a, of my head with a frying pan. And it's like, holy shit, everything else that's going on right now. And I know there are people already quite busy on this, but we, meaning all of us, not just the activists in groups that are, are trying to protect choice, but all of us, all of us, what do we do to, to not let this happen in the coming year with a Supreme Court, and if the answer isn't nothing because none of us can, none of us are going to be on the Supreme Court. What's the plan? Is there a plan? Well, the, the only response. Uh, this was after two years of reporting for this book. Uh, the I came to the conclusion that the only way to break the back of this movement was to reintegrate these people into the economy, um, re-knit the social bonds that had been ruptured. And work is really key, and I'm no fan of Pope John Paul II on many levels, um, but he wrote a very fine encyclical on the nature of work, uh, which is worth reading. Mm. Uh, and he writes that it's not just about exchanging uh, labor for a wage. It's about a place in society. He even brings in the whole importance of meaningful uh, work with a sustainable income for, for the maintenance of family. He's right. And given deindustrialization and the uh, largest transference of wealth upwards in U.S. history uh, and the ongoing assault, I mean, we're now on the cusp of watching unemployment benefits run out. Uh, yes, they keep extending briefly the evictions on moratoriums and foreclosures, but the numbers vary. I think the last I heard was 11 million families are in danger of being evicted. Um, that if we don't address those fundamental economic issues that have pushed huge sections of the society uh, into the hands of uh, these uh, demagogues and uh, and uh, many of them tied. Remember the DeVos family was accused of funding these um, militia groups in Michigan that tried to kidnap the governor. Uh, then yes. were 
that, that's the only solution. So in a sense, the only solution was pr proposed by Bernie. My one problem with Bernie is he wouldn't take on the military-industrial complex, which uh, is, I mean, especially if we see after Afghanistan, just disemboweling uh, the mm. country. Um, and that whole 20, up to 25% of the GDP is uh, weapons manufacturing. I mean, this is just nuts, this right. kind of military Keynesians, Keynesianism. So um, it, it is, these people have to be reintegrated into the society. And of course, the opposite is happening with the assault, the economic assault caused by the fallout from the pandemic and the inability. I mean, one time check of $2,000, I mean, which was vacuumed up by landlords and credit card companies. Um, so uh, that, that's the only hope I see. Um, we're not going to argue these people out of their belief system, which isn't rational to begin with. Um, you, you can't have rational arguments with people who think that uh, uh, Adam and Eve were real people who rode, put a saddle on a T-Rex in the Garden of Eden because right. dinosaurs were, which, which is an actual diorama at the Creationist Museum in Peterborough, Kentucky. So, um, right. And it was 6,000 years ago when Adam and Eve did that. Yes. And, and as I, when I took the tour, the guide uh, said that many of us probably had questions about why the T-Rex had such large teeth. Uh, and that's because Adam and Eve used the T-Rex to open the coconuts. Oh, now see, I didn't think of that. Right. It's where can I pick myself up a T-Rex? It's always <laughs> funny when you tell the story, but it's not funny when you sit there and 50 oh, yeah. people believe it. No, that's very true. So, yeah, no, I've tried the rational uh, argument. It doesn't work. I've even tried to show them that nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus use the word abortion. Right. It's not there. It's not there. It's not what they say that it is. And just like there's nowhere that he talks about homosexuality. All the stuff that they use Jesus for to back up their their belief system just simply isn't there. But it doesn't matter that it isn't there to them. In their hatred of Muslims, it doesn't matter if you open up the Quran and show them the Book of Mary. That that Muslims actually have a book in their Bible that Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was a prophet, and his mother got her own chapter in the Quran. You know, it was fascinating. <laughs> I was always upfront about who I was and where I came from. And as soon as they realized that I came out of the church and yes. I had a seminary degree, they never tried to talk Bible talk with me, ever, mm -hmm. because right. they don't know the Bible. Right. They only know those selected bits, very few of which, by the way, come from the gospel. They tend to come from Revelations and Paul. Uh, those selected bits that buttress their ideology. They don't actually know the Bible at all. So, okay, so this is... Obviously, to hold out our hand and to try and build a different economic system where they don't suffer, uh, where they have a decent job and get and make decent money and get to have a decent life, we, we should all work for that, for everyone, obviously. This isn't going to take care of the problem of making abortion illegal within the next year. So... You know, I've just been thinking about this today. I don't, I don't, uh, you know, I mean, I think that definitely we need to connect with groups that are, are trying to make a plan. And I listened to them a little bit today talking about how, you know, if we get a better situation in Congress, we can get laws passed. We can, uh, they'll never be able to outlaw abortion in every state because it's going to end up a state's rights thing. So there's going to be 20 states maybe where you can get an abortion, but 
Wow. We all need to put our boots on here. This is a fight we have to have. Well, we need to take this creeping fascism seriously, and we need to understand that Trump didn't create it. Right. Trump was a symptom. Right. He's not the disease. That and until correct. we address the disease, which is caused by these rapacious elites that don't pay taxes, I mean, the insane amounts of wealth, uh, Musk, Elon Musk, uh, Jeff Bezos, I mean, the, I don't know what the latest figure is, but they're each worth about $180 billion. Now, when David Rockefeller died, he was worth about $3 billion. I mean, this is wealth uh, amassing by, by individuals that w we've never seen, I would argue, certainly in modern history. I mean, even like Imelda Marco, Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos, who pillaged the Philippines, I think, were worth about $20 billion, you know, I don't know, Idi Amin, 10 not like this kind of money. And they own the political system. Right. Uh, they own the press. They own, you know, the press is completely corporatized. Uh, I mean, the whole, you know, I know we're going to talk about Afghanistan, but watching John Bolton, of all, who's insane. I mean, H.R. Uh, McMaster, uh, uh, Leon Panetta, all the architects of this uh, feudal, disastrous uh, uh, conflict are the ones now... Uh, uh, you know, on all of the networks, uh, speaking about it. Um, so, um, the system itself is, uh, in serious decay, seriously diseased. And Biden, I think is a kind of cover for, it, but, uh, um, and, and you know, what was interesting about the last election is that the democratic party elites like, uh, Lloyd Blankfein had been the CEO of Goldman Sachs and others, made it very public, very clear that if somehow Bernie got the nomination, which the Democratic Party hierarchy was never going to allow, they would all support Trump. Um, Trump was an embarrassment to the empire because of his vulgarity and ineptitude, and, um, uh, but they could live with Trump. Uh, right. They were never going to live with Bernie. Correct. Uh, right. And... Uh, and they are the people that have created the morass that the country has fallen into. Um, uh, and and they're, they, you know, they place Biden because he's been a loyal servant. To, they used to call him Senator Credit Card. He's a loyal servant to these interests. Uh, and uh, he would be a good, uh, you know, give more decorum perhaps and gravitas to uh, the uh, office of the presidency and will not in any way seriously disrupt their disemboweling of, of the country. In the months leading up to the 2020 primary, so in, in 2019, when Bernie uh, was consistently in first place in all the polls, and it looked like he was going to win and did the or tie for the early uh, primaries and uh, caucuses, Biden was going, was supposed to be their hope to beat Bernie and he was polling at fifth or sixth, and in those first primaries, he came in fifth or sixth or might even been seventh in one of them. You remember, they immediately went to Bloomberg yeah, and convinced him right. to be the great white hope. They, they threw Biden under the bus and went to Bloomberg, and then Bloomberg is, essentially gets thrown under the bus by Elizabeth Warren in that first debate, and that was the end of that. But let's, yes, let's talk about Afghanistan and empire, and we've had a, another blow to empire, our empire, uh, in the last couple of weeks. 
we've lost our most recent war in a long string of losses, uh, a couple of draws, but basically since World War II, you know, our wars are primarily fought against people of color. The the Balkan Wars are the wars that you covered there with Serbia and uh, the former Yugoslavia and uh, Bosnia and all that. Uh, I guess white people consider them white, but of course these most people don't realize the, the large Muslim population that exists uh, in in that part of Europe. And watching the pundits in the last couple of weeks, the, the H.R. McMasters and the Petraeuses and all these architects of, of this disaster, um, they didn't want it to end. They were criticizing Biden to keep it going, keep it going. Don't, no, no, August 31st, no. And it was amazing to see uh, them do this. But I worry, Chris, and this is why I wanted you to come on today, because I want our friends, the, the average Americans, the, the great you know, middle of this country, to understand what's happened here, what it means for us, and what we need to do so that we never get ourselves in a situation like this again. And you, having spent those 15 years in that mostly that part of the world and being the Middle East bureau chief for a number of those years, you were there, you were on the ground, you saw it. And, and in your writings, uh, as far as I'm concerned, you were trying to warn us about this and we've paid an awful price. And, but I'm, I'm also worried about our soul because the decisions we make from this point on, there is no more room. There's no more wiggle room here. Um, if we are going to be true and good and decent uh, of a, as a people, yeah, I mean the 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 problem is 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 the fact that the survivability at this point of the U.S. economy is based on uh, the production of weapons. Uh, the, you know, employment. Uh, I think the you know the defense industry employs close to a million people and. Uh, then you have all the people employed in the military itself, and then all of the people, all of the towns that survive uh, because of uh, whatever defense department plant or uh, uh, is located near them or in their uh, city. So the economy is so distorted. Seymour Melman wrote about this back in the 80s in his great book, The Permanent War Economy. Uh, and uh, And so... And all of these people who you just mentioned, of course, sit on boards of these companies like Raytheon and Halliburton, so they're profiting from the wars. Uh, we know from the Afghanistan papers that were published by the Washington Post uh, that uh, the political and military leadership uh, understood uh, that uh, you know at best they would fight the Taliban to a stalemate, uh, that the, the public pronouncements about the war in Afghanistan bore no relation to what was happening on the ground, but for the defense contractors, it was, uh, they made a killing. I mean, their stocks have quadrupled since 9-11. And and that's the problem. We have an out-of-control, unaccountable, even the Pentagon uh, doesn't submit itself to being audited. Uh, It sucks half of all discretionary uh, spending. And that, of course, is the, the primary element in, in terms of the disintegration of all empires. That's how the Roman Empire fell, f- trying to field a one million man uh, army. And, uh, and that's why uh, Leibniz 
uh, uh, the great uh, German socialist called the German military the enemy from within. Uh, and so what's happened over the last 40 years uh, in Afghanistan, I have to go back to 79 when the Soviets invaded and the CIA uh, under Brzezinski uh, started along with the Pakistan's uh, ISI, the intelligence agency, uh, spent anywhere, we don't know the real figure because a lot of it was done off the books and a lot of it was Saudi money, but anywhere from $9 billion, some estimates are as high as $20 billion, uh, arming the most radical Islamic Mujahideen groups fighting the Soviets, uh, uh, essentially destroying uh, the secular democratic Afghan uh, opposition, and that was to give the Soviet Union, in Brzezinski's words, its Vietnam. Uh, and that uh, campaign uh, 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 created, well, and we have to be, Osama bin created Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, who were in uh, Afghanistan to assist uh, the Mujahideen, but that created the Taliban because after the Soviets. Uh, withdrew these warlords that we had armed, spent two years slaughtering each other for control of the country, uh, and that saw the rise of the uh, Taliban taking power in 1996. Uh, and so it's all, uh, e e Afghanistan was a kind of petri dish, uh, uh, the, and, and the, the, just in that period of uh, when the Soviets were occupying and we were funding the Mujahideen, a million Afghan civilians. Uh, were killed, along with 90,000 Mujahideen fighters, 18,000 Afghan troops, and 14,500 Soviet troops. Um, but these uh, deaths were kind of worth it uh, in the great power game uh, of the Cold War, at least in the eyes of Brzezinski and the others. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a real cynicism. I think those of us who've been on the outer reaches of empire get it. Um, empire is really the uh, external face of uh, white supremacy because, as you pointed out correctly, uh, the empire uh, subjugates uh, and occupies and obliterates people of color. And that's why within Iraq, Afghanistan, all of these conflicts now that have spread to Syria, Libya, parts of Pakistan, Somalia, there is among uh, soldiers and Marines on the ground a very racist language towards the people that they are trying to control, the sand N and ragheads, <coughs> all this kind of stuff. Um, and that's what the core of empire is. It, it, it seeks to justify itself by speaking about its superior civilization uh, and the benefits of its quote-unquote superior civilization, but all empires, whether it's the British uh, the French, uh, anywhere else, it's about uh, the exploitation of cheap labor, the pillaging of natural resources, um, draconian forms of control, and state terrorism. That's what empire is. Uh, and uh, the, the you're right. It has been. I mean, whether it's the Bay of Pigs, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's Iraq, which is now controlled by Shiite factions allied with Iran. Uh, uh, whether it's Afghanistan, uh, there's just been one debacle after another. The problem is nobody's held accountable. In fact, all of the architects, as you again pointed out, are uh, you know saying we shouldn't have left or we should have done this or we should have done that, not being uh, held responsible for what they did in Iraq, in Afghanistan, 
uh, and uh, um, that has uh, created a kind of unaccountable political and military elite uh, that leaps from fiasco to fiasco uh, and is just self-perpetuating. Uh, and this gets into the expansion of NATO up to the Russian border, very foolish move. Uh, Reagan had promised Gorbachev that NATO would not expand beyond Germany's borders after the reunification of Germany. But of course, there were billions of dollars to be made, uh, which have been made by the arms industry, our arms industry, we're the largest exporter of arms on the planet, um, uh, by refitting uh, former uh, Soviet pact countries, Czechoslovakia, Poland, with uh, NATO compatible equipment. So I was in Warsaw a couple years ago, and I get off, and there are all these billboards uh, from Raytheon. Um, so it, 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 that's the problem. And, and if we don't, it's what Eisenhower warned about the military industrial complex. Uh, and if we can't tame the military industrial complex, I mean, they're now, what Biden just gave, what, 60 million dollars to Ukraine. They're fitting out Ukrainian ports to be compatible with NATO ships of the Crimea, they would, which is the major Russian port. Of course, they would like to turn into a NATO port. That's really what the core of the conflict is about. This is now flirting with China in the South China Sea, uh, issues over Taiwan. These people have to create chaos like the intelligence agencies. They have to create conflict um, because that justifies their existence. And uh, in that way, they're able to ratchet up both their budgets uh, and, uh, and, and the kind of violent violence that they carry out. I mean, the whole CIA itself, which should be an intelligence, intelligence gathering, uh, I mean, that should be its primary job, uh, now runs paramilitary units and operates dark sites and carries out targeted assassinations and uh, was organizing... CIA armed raids uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, I mean, it's just gotten completely and and it's there. It's all secret. It's not. It's we we don't see it. We don't even know what the uh, budget is for these intelligence agencies. That's secret. So that sure. is the fundamental problem. It's destroying the country. So yeah. So yesterday, right? Um, I turn on the TV, and there's the president of Ukraine sitting there in the White House with with Biden. And um, and they're talking about this. What you mentioned the sixty million dollars we're going to give them to, and I'm wait, I'm wait, wait a minute. We're just one day out of Afghanistan, and we're talking about let's take on the Russians in Crimea, and even last week there was some saber rattling regarding China. What is wrong with these people that they can't even wait hours after one catastrophe to jump in to the next? And it just it it was just mind boggling. To see this, and I want to read actually something that you posted here a couple of weeks ago uh, while the collapse was starting and taking place and all the pundits were on, on the news and uh, trying to keep the importance of the war machine, the American war machine going, whether it's going to be in Afghanistan or the next place we're going to end up. That, that just if I could quote you here, and you were referring to all these, all of a sudden, all these stories, oh, the poor Afghan people. Oh, the women, the girls, all this is going to happen. This is, this is a country that still can't recommit to and pass and extend the Violence Against Women Act in our Congress. Uh, that still, even though we've got the 38 states required for the Equal Rights Amendment, still hasn't been placed into the Constitution. Okay. So, 
So I, I get the crocodile tears for our, our great concern for women in our country and, and around the world. But this is what you wrote. You said the faux pity, quote, the faux pity for the Afghan people from these, you know, American uh, pundits, whatever. This faux pity, which has defined the coverage of the desperate collaborators with the U.S. and coalition occupying forces and the educated elites fleeing to the Kabul airport, begins and ends with the plight of the evacuees. There were few tears shed for the families routinely terrorized by our U.S. coalition forces or the some 70,000 civilians who were obliterated by U.S. airstrikes, drone attacks, missiles, and artillery, or gunned down by nervous occupying forces who saw every Afghan, with some justification, as the enemy during the war. And there will be few tears for the humanitarian catastrophe that empire, our empire, is orchestrating on the 38 million Afghans who live in one of the poorest and most aid-dependent countries in the world. I mean, were you going as crazy as I was over this last month listening to this utter bullshit being perpetrated on the American people? Because it's just self-adulation, our goodness, our virtues, utterly disconnected from 20 years of horror, and I would argue 40 years of horror, that we've orchestrated on the Afghan people. And now... Uh, the UN is already talking about mass starvation. Uh, you, you know, at this moment, with the Taliban taking control, uh, you know, one in three uh, Afghans, about 14 million Afghans, don't have enough to eat. Two million Afghan children are malnourished. Uh, some half a million Afghans have been displaced from their homes. Uh, and this is on top of a drought that destroyed 40% of the nation's crops. Last year, courtesy of climate change, um, food prices are skyrocketing. Uh, and so what do we do? We impose sanctions, as we did on Iraq, which UNICEF estimates killed 500,000 children. Um, and uh, and you, you can look at uh, the kind of statements of Madeleine Albright, so then the UN, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, uh, you know, famously tells uh, Leslie Stahl in 60 Minutes when she asks whether half a million Iraqi children dying because of the sanctions was worth it. She says, yes, it was worth it. Or Clinton, Hillary Clinton joking about uh, Gaddafi being sodomized and brutally killed uh, and saying, we came, we saw he died. Or Zell Miller of Georgia, who after the 9-11 attacks uh, says, I say bomb the hell out of them. And if there's collateral damage, so be it. Um, and uh, that, that's the real face of empire, which we don't see. Um, but yes, the coverage has been utterly nauseating and, uh, and so disingenuous uh, uh, and ignoring the suffering that we are responsible for, uh, the massive suffering that we've, uh, because of our invasion of Afghanistan, the Taliban, by the way, uh, they gave safe harbor to Osama bin Laden. That's true, but they, uh, uh, you know, were willing to completely surrender. Uh, and the whole justification for going into Afghanistan was supposedly to get Osama bin Laden. Although, of course, they hired uh, uh, 
Northern Alliance troops to go into Tora Bora, and they were just the the Al Qaeda operatives just bought them all off and fled to Pakistan. Um, and then, for some odd reason, we decided we needed to go to war with the Taliban uh, and rebuild Afghanistan in our own image. Something the Soviets tried uh, for ten years, and um, the British tried in the nineteenth century, and it didn't work out for either the Soviets or the British uh, any more than it worked out for us. So what happens now in Afghanistan? Well, what happens now is, is, uh, is that humanity, we're going to make them pay. Uh, that, that's how empires work, um, you know, especially wounded empires. Uh, and so uh, you have uh, the uh, Afghan reserves and other financial accounts have all been frozen. Uh, so that cuts the half the Taliban government out of not, an estimated $9.5 billion, uh, from that belonged to the Afghan Central Bank. Uh, you can't get shipments of cash to Afghanistan. The IMF uh, said it, Afghanistan will no longer be able to access uh, um, its resources. Uh, they, they'll put a, they'll make them pay, and and they will also. I have no doubt about it, having spent 20 years overseas and watching how uh, this pattern works. They uh, are reaching out to those warlords they have worked with uh, in the past. Uh, and will funnel them arms and money uh, and support uh, to destabilize uh, Afghanistan. That's uh, and that's you already have uh, the former Vice President Saleh, uh, who's uh, he's holed up in the Panjshir Valley. Uh, you had uh, uh, Afghan Massoud and Mohammed Atanur and Dostum and all these people who have long done, carried the water for the CIA in the United States, are uh, all clamoring to be armed and supported to perpetuate the conflict. And that's what's going to happen. Mm. And what about us, Chris? What happens to us? I mean, the, 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 you know, when we, so we borrowed, what, $2 trillion for the war in mm -hmm. Afghanistan? Yeah. Uh, we should have just taken all that money out in a big field and burned it um, because it was borrowed. So now we've got to pay the interest on it. Uh, you have all of the uh, veterans who uh, have suffered uh, physical and psychological wounds from that war who have to be cared for. Um, uh, what happens is uh, the country continues both the kind of physical decay um, because, of course, our resources are squandered in, uh, you know, military adventurism. It's called micro-militarism. It's what historians call it. It's how empires always die. Um, so you had 50 years of Athenian democracy. Thucydides writes all about this in the Peloponnesian Wars, and then they over, it's overreach. Uh, so what do we have? 800 bases around the world, um, and uh, and that's that. This is what we're seeing in Afghanistan. So Athens uh, invades Sicily. Its entire fleet is sunk. Most of its soldiers are killed. Uh, there become uprisings throughout the empire. You can look to. Uh, 1956, the Suez Crisis, when Nasser uh, nationalized the Suez Canal, the British Empire uh, attempts to go in, along with Israel and the French, uh, to seize it, and they have to retreat in humiliation. That is the end of the British Empire, which, which did a better job of dismantling itself. So either the empire is broken up, uh, uh, and we begin to address the very deep ills within the United States, or... Uh, then we face 
uh, a kind of uh, frightening reconfiguration, much as Rome did uh, with, you know, so you still have, we still have a Congress, uh, but it doesn't function in any real way. It's completely, I mean, even the, they don't even write the legislation, the lobbyists write the legislation and uh, pass it. So you have the form, like the uh, after Augustus rose in the Rome, you still have the the uh, the language and the and the institutions, but they're no longer uh, functioning in, in any real way. And then the forms of social controls, you cut people off in terms of uh, being able to be integrated in a meaningful way in the society. Then the forms of control, which we already see in what Malcolm X would call our internal colonies, uh, becomes very draconian. You have police, militarized police units and you know, Detroit and Ferguson and Camden and all these other places, uh, which carry out reigns of terror. And I don't use that word lightly. That's what they are. I teach in a prison. Um, so, you know, I'm in close touch with my students and their families. Um, it, it's police and mass incarceration. It's why we have 25% of the world's prison population and we are less than 5% of the world's population. Um, and, and, and Hannah Arendt writes about this where she said that when uh, people are stripped of their rights, and she herself lost her German passport, was stateless in France, she said when people are stripped of their rights, then it creates both a legal and a physical mechanism to turn rights into privileges, uh, and, uh, and those privileges can be taken away. That's where we're headed. We're headed to, uh, you know, if we don't get Trump, uh, unless there is a real reckoning with what's happening internally, and I don't see that Biden the Biden administration in any way attempts to do that, uh, then we may end up with a competent Trump. I think you've said this, and you're right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, and that's very dangerous. Somebody like Mike Pompeo or Tom Cotton or maybe some a name we don't know, uh, but a competent fascist who, when they attempt to carry out a coup, actually have organized it to make it work. And, you know, at the same time, we're talking about uh, the uh, the death of reproductive rights for women in Texas, it's we are also talking about the passage of draconian voter suppression laws. Same time in Texas. At the same time. Literally on the same day. Literally the same day. <laughs> you know, people that listen to this podcast, I, I don't want them to ever leave an episode of this with this utter sense of despair that there's no hope, uh, that we're, we're so far down the hole that we won't be able to climb out of it, you know, because I've believed for a very long time since I, I first ran for office and was elected when I was 18. And I was, I, I figured out very quickly that the more that you can instill despair in people, the more you can demoralize them, the more you have them believing that they really don't have any power and they can't change anything. That's the sweet spot. That's where you want the public. And I try to, Chris, I try to fight against this nonstop, not just because I want to leave people with, in fact, I'm against hope. You know, I call it hopium. The, the, the worst thing to do is to just, you know, uh, feed people a big bowl of hope uh, when, in fact, we're in, we're, in, we're in a very dark space here. And uh, um, we're going to have to be very smart and very committed. We're going to have to love each other and be kind to each other and work together to fight this. Otherwise, we won't win. And that, that means when I say win, I mean whether that's fighting the right wing, the fighting fascism, 
whether it's uh, fighting the forces that have led us to the collapse of the planet. We need to rethink how we're doing this and how we fight and and, uh, how we work together to do that. You're one of these people who, I don't know what we do without you. There are many people in my lifetime, we were talking before we went on on the air here about the old magazine, Ramparts, back in the 60s and the early 70s, and the writing that took place and the people, the the Chris Hedges of of that era, of of which Bob Shear was certainly one and, and others. But if I didn't have them when I was a teenager to read, I don't know. I don't know where I would have gone or where I would have turned. And so we have you with us. We have Noam Chomsky. We have, you know, others, uh, a, a, a similar, a person who has con- combined his divinity degree with a very good and correct political message, uh, Cornell West. I mean, there there are people, but there aren't, aren't many of you. And it's so important that... Uh, your writings, your thinkings, that you share that with us and help us try to figure out what to do. I'm sorry to put that on your shoulders, but you're needed now more than ever. So um, take that for what it's worth. You know, it's like Camus. I mean, it, it, there's uh, Camus is a good writer to read. Um, that there's, a, a you know, the assertion of our dignity uh, in the face of, you know, what Sheldon Wollin would call this system of inverted totalitarianism is a moral imperative. Uh, and it what's, it's what keeps us whole. Uh, we can't use the word hope if we don't resist. And I remember asking Daniel Berrigan how he defined faith. And he said, the belief that the good draws to it the good, even if all the empirical evidence around you says otherwise. And I would say from my experience as a war correspondent that that is right. The good does draw to it the good. So that even when a shell would land in Sarajevo, and these were huge shells and uh, bodies were eviscerated and you could palpably sense the waves of death emanating from where these shells had landed. Um, And then families would rush and friends rush forward to try and help those who had been wounded. You could feel these concentric circles of love and death, life and death. Um, and I saw it in the revolutions in Eastern Europe. So when I covered uh, the Velvet Revolution, I was in the Magic Lantern Theater every night with Václav Havel and Dinsbier and all the people who would eventually run uh, the government. Uh, you had, uh, they would have big uh, protests, half a million people in Venezuela Square. And uh, I remember the night they brought out this great uh, Czech singer, uh, Marta Kubasheva. Now, she had sung a prayer for Marta, which was the anthem of defiance in 1968 against the Soviet invasion to overthrow Dubček. Uh, and when the Soviet puppet government took over and Dubček was thrown out, uh, she was banned from the airwaves. Her recording stock was destroyed. Um, she worked in the intervening years on an assembly line in a toy factory. And I was there that night when she walked out on that balcony and began to sing a prayer for Marta and every check in the crowd knew every word. Hmm. That is the power of the good drawing to it the good. Um, you know, it may not even be seen in our lifetime, but I think that's where faith becomes important. Um, and, and, and that we have to have faith, that resistance, fighting what I would call these forces of death, 
even if empirically everything around us says otherwise, does have an effect and does give us hope. And I think my own experience in extreme situations validates that. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, what keeps us whole. I mean, there is a kind of, there, there are rapid highs and lows conditioned within us by the consumer society. But we all have to be endowed with what the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr calls sublime madness in the soul. Um, Vasily Grossman writes about this beautifully in his novel, Life and Fate. Um, and I think that uh, for me, it's not accidental that our great prophets, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, came out of faith traditions, that, um, that it didn't really matter. Uh, Hannah Aaron has a great quote. She said, you know, don't trust those people who say you, uh, 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 you ought to do this, I oughtn't to do this, or I shouldn't do this. Only trust those people who say I can't. Good attracts good. I believe that. I absolutely believe that. Uh, Chris Hedges, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, coming on this podcast and, and talking to us. I hope you'll come back again. Uh, we have much ahead of us here, a lot of work uh, to do. And um, you mentioned that you were just finishing up your next book. It's out so, in October. It's the one you mentioned on teaching in the prisons. Yeah. So that, well, that's very, very soon. And such an important issue too, in terms of the the system of mass incarceration, the prison industrial complex, all of that. Um, I look forward to that and, and you're uh, humanizing it uh, for us. Um, it's very important. Come back on uh, when the book's out and we'll talk about that. I'd like to do that. And uh, uh, thank you for all these years of, of your work. And uh, thank you for, you know, a lot of us, you, myself, uh, Barbara Lee, and people that were lone voices at the beginning of these wars uh, back in the early 2000s, um, had to take an awful lot of grief. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, they weren't able to silence you and, uh, and beat you down, uh, that you were. I tried that with you too. You know. Yeah, no, I, yes, I know that. I know that in a very, very real way. Uh, when they arrested the guy that was building the fertilizer bomb for my house, I, I knew that in a very real way. But yet, you know, it's important that people see that, uh, that we, we can't be broken in that way if what we believe, what we're doing and saying is speaking to our conscience and acting on that, uh, that can only be a good thing. And I encourage everybody listening to this to do the same, uh, to find the courage, uh, if you can, to take the little steps in your daily life, at work, at school, in your family. Together, the more of us, the better. So I encourage that. And, and I thank you, Chris, for... Um, helping us lead the way. Thank you so much. Great. Well, thanks for doing it, Michael. Okay, be well. We'll talk soon. And uh, Chris Hedges uh, here is our guest here on Rumble. And that's it uh, for Rumble with Michael Moore. Thank you very much, everybody, for uh, tuning in, thinking about the topics and the things that we were discussing today, all very important. And I look forward to continuing this discussion with you here on my podcast uh, next week and on our great movie night a week from uh, next week, Friday, September 10th, 9 p.m. Join us on that night. I'll have some uh, special guests. And on the eve of the 20th anniversary of the great tragedy of 9-11, we can talk amongst ourselves about what we still need to do to make sure that not only that something like that doesn't happen again, but that we are seen 
in the world as people of peace, as people who want the rest of the world to live a good and decent life. That that's not just for the exclusive club of America and the first world. So I remain hopeful. I remain committed. And I welcome you to be my guest next Friday night, September 10th, 9 p.m., for a very special screening of Fahrenheit 9-11. It's all free. If you're not signed up on my mailing list, if you're just a podcast listener, sign up on the list. Don't worry, I don't send you a lot of stuff. You're never going to get anything from a politician asking you or telling you you have to contribute $15 by midnight tonight. None, none of that. Uh, I don't want any of your information. Just give us the, your email address and I'll, I'll let you know when things are coming up. And I'll also put you on the list so that you get my essay each week and this podcast will be right there it'll just the, e- the podcast will just be emailed to you. you won't have to go around looking for it on apple or spotify or whatever so uh so do that right now as we uh sign off subscribe to michaelmore.com thank you everybody and i'll talk to you here very soon